Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dial back the moxie, sass mouth. Sass mouth? <laughs> That's right. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. <laughs> and I'm sass mouth, apparently. That's how we're going. <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> well that's enough spy jinx <laughs> koal cam analysis what are we talking about this week <laughs> we're talking about 2014's penguins of madagascar you know when you said last week that we were going to tackle this film I, I was quite excited i mean i'd never seen a madagascar film madagascan film the madagascars i don't know <laughs> Madagascarian, <laughs> the, the Madagascar cinematic universe. I'd never, I never boldly ventured into it, but I, I'm surprised uh, at what you've turned up in today, Cam. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I'm in my full body penguin suit. That's correct. Yes. And by penguin suit, he means completely naked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with oil all over me to make myself glide very well. I wish you could tilt your camera up a little bit, though. I didn't need to see that part. <laughs> I put crop my head off in the frame. <laughs> Oh, don't go that far. I don't want to see that bit either, to be fair. <laughs> Welcome to our first family film, <laughs> animated family film review. Spy Hearts podcast. We're for kids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, yeah, but I, yeah, I was excited to do this because it's not our first animated adventure. It's not our first kids film. We're kind of versed in both by this point, but... What was the animated one we did before? Ghost in the Shell. Oh, of course. I never think of that one because it's like anime. It's very adult. Not a spy movie. Well, it's loosely spy connected, spy adjacent. But yeah, I guess I just don't connect what Madagascar's doing with uh, Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> They're night and day. I mean, to yeah. be fair, neither of them are no Sergeant Stubby. Yeah. You know what? I had a very North American attitude there, which I don't normally have. But people typically in North America regard animation as kid stuff. Mm -hmm. And I really just did that there because I didn't acknowledge Ghost in the Shell, which... You know, you go over to, like, Japan, and animation is viewed as an art form for everyone. Whereas here, really something that's heavily marketed primarily just towards, you know, kids and family audiences. Which must have been really confusing when you took your sort of nieces and nephews to go see Sausage Party in 2016. <laughs> the scream, Scott. <laughs> I can't get them out of my head. <laughs> that was just from you. Yeah. <laughs> That film is yeah. awful, by the way. If anyone's ever seen it, it's one of the worst films I've ever seen. I wasn't a huge fan. It has it has its supporters, but I wasn't uh, the biggest fan Did of it. Did you have to say huge? <laughs> Foot long. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Madagascar. Yeah, I, w I was excited to talk about this, though, and, and tackle a, a different side of kids' films, a different side of animation as well, because obviously we had live-action kids' films and animation from an adult point of view, so this is kind of the culmination of the two. And one of the few entries on our film list that really does do this, a lot of them are more adult-orientated uh, animations, or at least something that sort of appeals to the whole family, whereas I would say this is very much for kids. Yeah, and, like, did you... Going in, you hadn't seen a Madagascar film. This is a DreamWorks animated film from the mm -hmm. 2000s, or I guess 2010s, but, you know, they've been around since uh, the late 90s. Did you have any sort of, like, um, sense or relationship with, like, DreamWorks animated fare and kind of know what to expect? I really like Ants. Sure. Yeah, that was their first animated movie. Yeah. 
I actually really, no, I'm not taking the mickey. I really did like Ants yeah. as a kid. I thought it was actually a pretty good film. I actually preferred it to Bugs Life. I think I feel the same way, actually, which is rare because typically broad strokes, um, and I think it gets a little more nuanced when you break it down movie to movie, but broad strokes, it was always regarded as like Pixar made the great stuff or Disney, but primarily Pixar in that era uh, made like the top tier stuff. And DreamWorks was kind of the kind of junkier kid movie animated stuff mm. you can also look at like say like a movie like shrek which had a huge pop culture breakthrough for dreamworks and say well hold on you know shrek was a real phenomenon but it's kind of like um dreamworks were known for very like kind of zippy not particularly deep animated movies that would just pepper the films with like pop culture references and that was something like Pixar didn't do. So that was kind of the dividing point, And people tended to regard the Pixar stuff much more seriously. But for me, especially you know, Ant's Bug Life and sort of the films around that time, I was 13, 14, 15. Like, I, I wasn't really looking for depth in films particularly. I was looking for the ones I enjoyed more. So I didn't really care if I had pop culture references because they probably popped me anyway. Sure. Uh, I, was, I was young. Although... I did watch the original Madagascar oh. um, for this. Yeah, I just thought, you know what? I hadn't seen one myself. They're like 80 minutes. It was on Netflix. I didn't have to pay for it. So I thought, okay, I can fit in the first Madagascar because I'd seen the Shrek films. I'd seen a number of DreamWorks films, but I remember at a certain point just not being that interested in them because I just, they were kids films. Like Pixar stuff. They don't stuff, feel like they're for you, right? They don't feel like they're for you. No, and like Pixar stuff, I can easily sit and rewatch anytime. You know, like, I think Madagascar, the first one, came out around the same year. I think it might have been the same year, if if not like one year apart from like The Incredibles. And you're like, these are night and day in terms of what they are achieving. Uh, and I thought like the first Madagascar, it was like, it was, you know, zippy. It kept moving. It had some fun little bits. But the storytelling is, I think, a little too simple. Um, and some of the, like, just the stop dead for references to, like, Chariots of Fire and Saturday Night Fever, I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, sh surely that, surely that like, popped for you because you really enjoyed Spy Hard as well, right? <laughs> exactly, yes. I was like, thank God, finally, finally. But, yeah, it's like they're, they make movies that I think um, my mom would have a term when we were young and we would show her films that were very much aimed at us. But we were like, what did you think, Mom? What did you think? And she would say, that was cute. Hmm. And that would be kind of my takeaway from Madagascar, the first one. Yeah, I, I would. I'm I'm sad that you don't like to move it, move it. <laughs> but very, that's very DreamWorks. Very DreamWorks to like work in pop music that's popular at the time. Oh yeah. Well, I even sort of somewhat referenced that in this week's film. Uh huh. But I think before we dig any deeper into this film, let's talk about its letterbox.com synopsis. Let's go for it. Penguins of Madagascar. The movie events that will blow their cover. Skipper, Kowalski, Rico, and Private join forces with the undercover organization The North Wind to stop the villainous Dr. Octavius Brine from destroying the world as we know it. Yep. Yep, that was the film. That is definitely the plot of the film. I mean, let's be honest... We've talked about this with comedies in the past, but like Madagascar films, not just this one, but all of them, they are really just a clothesline to hang gags on. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we won't get into it too much now, but that 
that trend is definitely holding steady with this film too. Yeah. There are comedies to go above and beyond that though. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely are. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, yeah, like it seems like a lot of the DreamWorks stuff is very gag oriented. It's just goosing the audience with, you know, visual gags or lines or just pop culture references just to kind of keep the energy high consistently. Yeah. But I suppose we kind of mentioned it, but we should overtly say it. neither of us had seen this film before watching this. No, I mean, if I had only just seen the original Madagascar this past week, there was no way I was checking in with the fourth in the Madagascar franchise, you know, in 2014. The the real MCU. Hmm, that's true. That's true. They yes. did it first. They did it first. No, I, 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 you said it earlier. They seem like kids' films. I was never that bothered by them. By the time this was coming out, 2014, you know, I was mid 20s. Uh, would not have been for me. I would have looked odd in that cinema by myself without any kids. I guess, but like, you know, DreamWorks in 2009 did, or maybe it was 2010, did How to Train Your Dragon. And I thought that movie was fantastic. And I remember my friends and I going to see that one in theaters. And I saw all the How to Train Your Dragons in theaters. Um, and, I think it was just more the vibe of this one. When I was going to How to Train Your Dragons, I approached those the same way I would with Pixar, where I will go to see Pixar movies, and you'll see all ages in that room. Whereas I would have known, I think, if I had seen the first Madagascar, were I to show up to a screening of, you know, penguins, it would have been a room of screaming children all over the place. Which is an absolute nightmare. It is. It is. It truly is. It truly is. Well, I think we need to talk about how this film came to be because interestingly we're doing that thing which we do from time to time where we check out a film in a series of films that goes more spy but obviously we're not going to go back and look at the other Madagascar films (laughs) Patreon, Patreon We promise you folks we're not going to do that to you Patreon I mean Cam we're meant to be getting people to join the Patreon not unsubscribe (laughs) Good lord But yeah, how did we get to the fourth Penguins film? Okay, so we've talked a little bit about DreamWorks Animation. Um, It was created, obviously, by DreamWorks Studios. DreamWorks launched in 94, and it was a studio founded by Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen. And I remember at the time, like, the birth of DreamWorks was going to be the grand promise of, like, artistry on the big screen. Because you had a studio, you know, co-founded by Steven Spielberg. The wonders that were going to come out of this studio. And they've made lots of good stuff, but I don't know that I would regard DreamWorks as like the titan of creative industry at this point in my life. Um, and I remember their first movie they ever released in 1997, because obviously it takes a few years once they found the studio to get some product out. The first movie was The Peacemaker, starring George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. Do you remember that film? Oh, no. No idea. Exactly. It was a completely like forgotten movie the weekend it opened. Like a fart in the wind. Okay. It really was, yes. And DreamWorks Animation rolled around the year after with their first movie in 1998, which was Ants. And they had a one-two punch. They put out Ants, which is obviously CG animated. Pretty big hit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. DreamWorks is known for just packing their movies to the gills with movie stars. So when you look at a movie like Ants, you've got Woody Allen, Sylvester Stallone, Sharon Stone. And then you jump over to Bugs Life, and you've got Dave Foley as your star. Not quite the same wattage there. Right. Pixar tends to cast the uh, the person they want for the for the voice versus DreamWorks, which wants movie stars on their poster. Um, so that was kind of their approach. But the year of 98, they had Ants, and they also had Prince of Egypt, 
which was more traditional hand-drawn animation. And I think it was a little bit of a determination at that point. What is our future going forward? Ants was the much bigger hit, so you didn't get a lot of hand-drawn animation coming out of DreamWorks from that point forward. There was a couple, but not many. Well, I was going to say, they did have El Dorado mm-hmm. yep. not long after that, which was kind of like the, not the answer to the Emperor's New Cloak. It was, the, it came out before, didn't it? Oh, uh, I can't remember the timeline, but yeah, it was around that same point, yeah. Yeah. And also, for some reason, I'm looking at a list of uh, DreamWorks films, and it lists Chicken Run, but surely that was an Aardman production. They picked up, I believe, North American rights to that one. So it was released as a DreamWorks film, yeah. I see. But don't worry, the next year they bounce back with, uh, hey, now you're a rock star, it's Shrek. Yeah, and Shrek is the one that I think gives them their identity. Ants definitely put a lot of the pieces in place with the casting, pop culture references and stuff. But Shrek was such a phenomenon, massive hit. It was the first film to win the Best Animated Feature Oscar. The category was introduced that year, and uh, Shrek won it, beating out... I can't remember what Disney movie was that year, but I think there was always a sense that that Oscar would have to go to a Disney film, right? Like, it would have to for its first time ever. And when DreamWorks got it, I think it gave them a real boost in confidence. They put out Shrek 2 a few years later, which was one of the highest grossing films of all time. It was massive, absolutely massive. And then followed it up with Madagascar, which was, you know, an original property. It wasn't a sequel. It was something they were like, can we kind of replicate that magic? And I looked up the numbers because like this is 2005. Madagascar cost $75 million to make. Okay. It made, and this is 2005, not 2023. It made $542.1 million. Good grief. People did move and move it to that film. Uh-huh. Yes. I remember the cast being pretty stacked. I know like Chris Rock was in there. Uh, I can't recall who else. Ben Stiller, Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so I found a press release in Variety in 2005 where they announced a straight-to-DVD spinoff from Madagascar about the penguins. Mm-hmm. So the idea initially was that they were just going to crank out a straight-to-video movie about the penguins and kind of call it a day, get some content out there without putting the resources into it that they would a normal theatrical feature. Notably, they also mentioned in the press release there would be a Puss in Boots straight-to-video movie as well. So both of these things never happened, which is actually not that strange. Oh, they did. The Puss in Boots had his own film. We said two. Theatrical. This this announced a straight to video movie. Oh, I see. Well, that's happened a lot though. Like it happened with um, like uh, was it Aladdin two got a theatrical release because they made such a good film? Uh no, no. Aladdin went straight to video. The sequels. It was Toy Story two. Uh, I think that may have been it. Yeah. Was yeah was pr- um basically run through development as a straight to video before Pixar stepped in. And we were like, no, 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 no. We want to make this properly, and it wound up being obviously a you know classic. Yeah, yeah. Great film. Probably the best. No, no, I won't say that, actually. Toy Story 3 is probably my favorite. You come down on 3? Yeah, 2 is often regarded as the best. I think 2 is more fun as a whole product, but I think 3 has more emotional heights that stay with me. I don't think I've ever cried as much in a theater (laughs) watching those toys about to get burnt to death. I was was sobbing. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why. Oh, God. It's coming back. You speak to something there that I think family animation 
at its very best can do, which is like you're having an emotional reaction no matter what your age is to a sequence like that. Yeah, and they are literally just toys with a name drawn on the bottom of them. Like it's not, it shouldn't be that powerful, but it is. Obviously, there's a tinge of nostalgia when it comes to things like Toy Story, which I definitely haven't got for the Madagascars. Right, right. But in 2008, Madagascar 2 rolls out. This movie, they double the budget, $150 million. Worldwide, it makes $603.9 million. So it's gone up. Yeah. Like, the Madagascar franchise, I don't know that people regard it that much. Like, I don't hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I had to show my kids the Madagascar films. But, like, these movies make bank (laughs) big time. It's strange. I'm actually just looking at a list of the posters for the three Madagascar films. And growing as they go along is also the uh, the amount of, not the amount of penguins, but the size of the penguins in the poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they're picking up that the penguins are quite popular. It's a lot of peas there. Yeah. So in 2008, when they release Madagascar Escape to Africa, they also launch a TV series called The Penguins of Madagascar, which runs for three seasons, 95 episodes, and introduces a lot of the spy-fi elements that are going to obviously play a huge factor when we get to the 2014 film. I had actually never... I I wasn't aware of this TV show, so I was definitely surprised when I was Googling and this thing kept coming up. I I had trouble finding the film because of the TV show, funnily enough, but I, I also think it just would have been showing on TV channels I wasn't watching. Tougher movie to Google. This one or Firefox? Triple X. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very difficult. (laughs) Very difficult. Or very fun. (laughs) I did hours of research. (laughs) First family film, kids. (laughs) So the Madagascar parade keeps on going. 2012, we get to Madagascar 3, Europe's Most Wanted. So we've got a budget of 145 million, so down five million from the second one. Gross 746 worldwide. Why are they not making more of these? Why is there not a fourth one? <laughs> I don't know. I would be making Madagascar movies every two years forever, <laughs> forever. I mean, just looking at the numbers going up in that sort of clearly, there's a curve there. But like, there, apparently, there was one announced for. 2018 but they haven't done it yeah um there's yeah i'll get to the kind of the future of the franchise in a bit but yeah so during the production of madagascar 3 dreamworks decided they wanted to make a movie about the penguins and so they went to eric darnell eric darnell was the co-director of all of the madagascar films he co-wrote um um, i think the first three and had a background. He'd started in like music videos. He did music videos for REM. He co-directed Ants. And then he co-wrote and co-directed the uh, the first Madagascar with Tom McGrath. And obviously he was kind of like the keeper of Madagascar at this point. But he was too busy with Madagascar 3 to really focus on penguins. So what happened was they brought in Simon J. Smith, who was another DreamWorks kind of in-house guy he'd worked on shrek shorts and had co-directed b movie the jerry seinfeld animated movie in 2007 as well as um did some content regarding do you remember the movie megamind from 2010 from the back of my megamind yes i can remember it 
yeah, it was like a super villain kind of thing with Will Ferrell. Big, like a big blue guy, something like that? Yeah, yeah. So he'd yeah. done some like uh, shorts about Megamind as well. And they brought him in to basically start the movie. And he would be joined by Darnell once Madagascar 3 was done. Which is something I find interesting just looking at the IMDb, having co-directors, which is not a new thing. But like I, and also I imagine animation is a completely different process to directing a film. It's maybe you need two people that can make decisions on set because there's so much to do with animation. I don't know, but it's interesting to see a, a, sh- a shared credit for director. Yeah, in animation, there's usually two. Sometimes you'll see one. There's a number of Pixar movies that have a single director, but they often like to split the workload because these movies take forever and there's just so many different elements that the two have to kind of juggle. So you get a lot of directing teams in animation. That, that makes sense. I, I, I get it. And if you go back to like the older Disney stuff of like the 30s, 40s, 50s, there's often like four directors or five directors because they would work in sequences. It would be like you handle, you know, this sequence and that one. I'll work on this one and that one. And it would basically be a way to speed up the process. How many uh, directors worked on The Black Cauldron? Um, there's probably a couple, two or three probably. Mm. I keep I keep watching documentaries about Disney films recently and everyone just sort of references The Black Cauldron such a like a horrible like oh we don't talk about The Black Cauldron. I've never seen it. Is it is it bad? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It was right, okay. Disney trying to do more adult animation because in the 80s they were just really struggling. Like the grosses weren't there. Well, they made Condor Man, so yeah, of course they were. <laughs> yes, that was the it was the dark days. And the wings of Condor Man had cast a shadow over the Fair Kingdom, <laughs> and then they covered themselves up with a trench coat. <laughs> oh, God. think about what a grim time the eighties were. <laughs> and so, yeah, they put a lot of money into Black Cauldron, and it was just bad. And that was when Jeffrey Katzenberg joined Disney, and was just like, "Can we just like cut this movie down?" And so the final version is. It has its fans. There's people that really love the artwork, some of the iconography of it, but it's a pretty weak movie. Sure. And uh, so they had a screenplay for this one, and typical with animation, there's a lot of writers. Um, So the way it worked was there was four people came up with the story, and um, it was uh, a couple teams. You had Michael Colton and John Abood, who were TV guys in the 2000s, um, did shows like Leverage, for example. And then you had Alan Schoolcraft and Brent Simons, who had written 2010's Megamind. And between the four guys, they came up with what would be the story of of Penguins. And then um, Colton and Abood jumped over to the screenplay. So they actually worked on the screenplay, whereas the two from Megamind were just story credit. And um, the, uh, yeah, so Colton and Abood teamed up with Brandon Sawyer, who'd worked on animated TV since the mid-2000s, shows like Lilo and Stitch, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as well as 33 episodes of the Penguins of Madagascar TV show. And he, basically, the three of them came up with a f- screenplay for the film. Right. That's a lot, of, uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen right there. Pretty typical. Any year, if, you, if there's like a really breakthrough like Pixar movie or Disney film that gets a screenplay, Oscar nomination, you'll see like five writers. I just noticed on IMDb, this film is listed on a user poll for best spy comedies. Sure. Hmm. Well, I mean, spy comedies, we've seen some duds. <laughs> we just spoke about trench coat, so yeah, certainly so. Well, I'm going to pull up this list and maybe we'll come back to it later. Sure. Okay. And just in terms of the voice cast, um, the lead character, Skipper, is voiced by Tom McGrath, who... I mentioned that name earlier, 
was the co-director of the first three Madagascar films. And it was a case of, you know, small supporting character. The director could do a fun voice for it. And next thing you know, that character has taken on a life of their own, and he is now a voice. It's kind of a little bit like Brad Bird doing Edna in the Incredibles series, right. where yeah, yeah, yeah. he came up with the voice and you know recorded it, and then they were really happy with it. And next thing you know, he's, I'm sure, making a considerable amount of money on the side doing Edna merchandise and theme park tie-ins. All, all the power to him. Mm-hmm. Why not? Make that money. Yeah. And McGrath actually exec produced this movie as well. And then um, Cumberbatch and Malkovich um, in the film, apparently that was first choices. That was who they basically wrote those roles for, and they got them both. I can see that. I I mean, it it's something that we mentioned earlier with the other Madagascar films that had sort of big names in them. You didn't mention David Schwimmer for some reason, but he's one of the main cast. Poor David Schwimmer. In the previous Madagascars? He's in the first one. Yeah, he's in the first three, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they'd like to have these big names, and I, and I we'll talk about the casting in a bit. But putting those on a because the thing is, the 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 voice actors for the penguins aren't known people, no. so they needed some big names to bring to put on the poster and be like, "Hey, we got Benedict Cumberbatch and John Malkovich." And in 2014, kids were all about Benedict Cumberbatch, John Malkovich, and oh, John right. Malkovich too. <laughs> have you seen being John Malkovich? Yeah, it's a great film. Did you see Star Trek Into Darkness last summer? <laughs> he was Khan. <laughs> Can you believe it? Khan! <laughs> My voice almost slipped into the David Lynch voice there. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, this movie had a budget of $132 million. So less than the previous Madagascar sequels. Domestically, it did 83.9. Oh. International, 289.6 for a worldwide total of 373.5. That's quite it. That's almost half of what the previous Madagascar film did. Quite notable. It's interesting. It's probably why there's not been a Penguins 2. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I, I think maybe it's just maybe they were best suited for TV. Like good spin-off material, but not good like tentpole material. Well, I wonder if you were a parent in 2014. Was I? You know, <laughs> movie tickets are not as expensive as they are now, but they're expensive. And it's like, I could take my kids to go and see Madagascar, you know, penguins. Or there are 95 episodes of this thing on TV that I can just show my kids instead. Uh... <laughs> Insert the meme of we have McDonald's at home. Yeah. McDonald's at home is the is the Penguins TV show. Well, Also, I mean, we don't usually get into this, but it'd be interesting to track what was coming out around this time. Like, when was it released? What else was it out? Was there any other kids' films around the time that was diverting people's attention away? Yeah, I don't remember what the Pixar or Disney movies were of 2014. That year's a little bit of a blur for me for some reason. I, But then also, I, I'm not sure the names John Malkovich, Benedict Cumberbatch, or Ken Yong really pull in the kids i mean i don't know were kids like jumping for like david schwimmer and jada pinkett smith and you leave him alone poor david schwimmer ben stiller would have had a think a bit of name value with kids yeah 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 um yeah maybe that's nothing to do with it maybe that is nothing to do with it it's more just maybe just hit at the wrong time it's not like it didn't make its money mind you guys like this is an unproven ip it's 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 a side you know film it's not a main thing 
And it did make its money back and then some. So it wasn't a failure. And I will say, you know, I work in a bakery and I do cake decorating, or especially did back then, not as much now. I made a crap ton of Madagascar cakes. So, like, that was a very popular thing. But I don't recall any sort of penguins cakes or any sort of tie-in, nor did I ever get requests for penguins cakes. Cam, when you're baking bread, mm. do you like to prove it, prove it? Okay. Anyways, so this was number 19 for the year <laughs> between Lucy, the Scarlett Johansson, Luc Besson film, and Edge of Tomorrow, a.k.a. Live, Die, Repeat. Ah, what a weird sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like these two sci-fi action films. Yeah. And this one right in the middle. Yeah. I know which one I prefer out of the three. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow, obviously. Yeah. 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 That, that film was unfairly treated at the box office it should be someone's it should be a lot of people's like favorite go-to sci-fi i think i think so too the top three for the year number one transformers age of extinction which one was that i think that's the fourth one um is it yeah it's the fourth one it's the one with mark Wahlberg that introduces the dinobots and that was the first one i didn't see how much do you think it made oh Oh, these are still going. So I, I, okay, eight hundred million. One point one billion dollars. And this one was about three hours long, as I recall as well. Dragon adults were taking their kids to go see Transformers instead. Oh hell yeah, I think so. Yeah, just so they can see them do racist jokes with each other and pee on each other. Great stuff. Exactly. Yes. Mm. No accounting for taste. Number two was The Hobbit: The Battle of the Five Armies. Oh, God. And number three, Guardians of the Galaxy. So we had some bright spots oh, there. Which we saw together. That's right, in Las Vegas, yeah. yeah. The first film we ever saw together, you and I, actually. In IMAX. In IMAX. And that is still my favorite MCU film. It's up there for me, yeah. Yeah, I, I know you prefer Guardians 2. I have a lot of nostalgia for the first one. Uh, it, it, it hit right, and that soundtrack for me was very important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, kind of some postscript on this one. There was talk at the time if there would be a Penguins sequel, like on the press tour kind of thing. And it just, I think with those grosses, they were like, nope, we're okay. We're going to focus maybe on TV a little bit. So there's been no Madagascar animated films since this one. Um, but there was a All Hail King Julian TV series that ran for three years, as well as Madagascar A Little Wild, which did like kid versions of the popular Madagascar characters, which ran from 2020 to 2022. It's one of those IPs that you could just keep doing stuff like that for and stick it on kids' TV, and they would just yeah eat it up. Totally. And Tom McGrath, the voice of Skipper in this film, went on to direct a couple movies that we are going to tackle at some point uh, a ways down the road. A ways, a ways. What did he? What did he do? Boss Baby and Boss Baby Two: Family Business. Oh. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> well, guys, we're cancelling the show. This is the end of Spy Hards. We do not wish to speak about spy movies anymore. <laughs> this would be a really weird episode to end the podcast on. <laughs> Perfectly us, though, if we did. It's like um. I did the Arnie Geddon podcast, right? Talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Mm-hmm. This is not a plug. Um, this is a plug. <laughs> check it out if you want to or not. I don't care. But anyways, we went on hiatus because of the pandemic because we recorded in person. We didn't really like doing remote. And 
the last episode we did, because we have not returned to it, was the Conan the Barbarian remake with Jason Momoa. <laughs> was Arnie even in that? No, no. But we did remakes and stuff like that of his stuff. Oh, okay. That is not a home run ending to a podcast run. <laughs> no, no. I, I bet it's like your highest download getter, though. I guess it would be at this point, because it's the latest episode. Yeah. yeah. It was like, oh, oh, they haven't updated it in five years. <laughs> And it has, like, I believe, a tag at the front of the episode saying, don't worry, folks, we'll be back soon. <laughs> oh, well, maybe one of these days, if me and you get a bit, a bit bored, we can get your friend around and we can revive Arnie Geddon for a few weeks and, and, and just finalize, like, his, his filmography. You must only have a couple of films left. Yeah, like three or four, yeah. Does that include his new ones? Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not including, there's a couple new ones, nothing really big, um... But I think we've got like Stay Hungry, Junior, Commando, and I think there's one other. And you said this wasn't a plug. Hmm, yes. Next week on Arnie Giddon. <laughs> okay, Cam, Operation Flash, Splash, and Crash is definitely a go. I'm going to talk first about the film because you had all that airwaves time about Arnegeddon just then. So I think it's my time to talk. <laughs> and the original Madagascar, which was relevant. Sure, sure, sure. I um, I struggled with this film, I have to say. It's interesting because I had to put... um, I, I did two watches, and it's only 80 minutes. It says it's 90 minutes, but it's like 80 with 10 minutes of credits or something like that. Craziness. Yeah. Same with the original. Sure. I, I don't mind that. It's great. I can watch two of these in the space it takes me to watch Avatar The Way of Water. Two and a half, probably. And yet, I felt I was more engaged with Avatar The Way of Water... And I was with this. And it's not that it didn't have moments of fun, but it just felt like it was completely not aimed at me. And so I had to sort of take a step back and acknowledge that it wasn't aimed at me. And there is some good voice work in here. The animation is slick. It looks great. Uh, it's, it's very, the colors pop on the screen. But I just couldn't get into it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't find the fun. I couldn't find the magic that I guess kids would have when they go to see it, which is a shame. Because it has a lot of stuff going for it, as I said, and you can cl- you can clearly see that the filmmakers have got into a process with the three Madagascars that came before, and they know what they're doing, and they know how to write these sort of comedy scripts. I just don't think I laughed once. I think I laughed maybe a couple times, but I mean, I was in a similar boat as you. Like, I think this movie is fine. If I had kids, I would be more than content to sit them down in front of this movie um, yep. I think in terms of like an introduction to kind of spy spoof kind of stuff, it's not bad. It, it's actually, you know, it has some colorful elements. There are a lot of James Bond references maybe we can dive into in a little bit. Um, sure. It moves. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's just kind of taking its time. But I find with these, it's so common with the uh, DreamWorks movies of a particular era. I think before they tried to get maybe a little more ambitious with the Dragon films and what have you. It's they are so just based on gags, and the gags are very much pitched at like really young kids, um, and they come fast and furious, which I give them credit for. They're constantly trying. There's never a sense of like letting the energy flag, but at the same time, when you go and see the Pixar movies or some of the Disney stuff that really hits, it has time for like real emotional development, mm-hmm. and it doesn't forsake pace or energy to do it. It just understands organically how to make that really connect. Whereas like movies like this have just kind of this 
defense mechanism of we can't stop. We have to keep joking. We have to keep injecting a set piece or an action moment or something like that. We cannot slow down. We don't have confidence in kind of getting that across. There was a point when we got to the end of this movie where I think it was Skipper said to, you know, Junior or was it Junior? Whatever the youngest penguin's name was. Private. Private. Thank you. Said to him, like, you see, looks don't matter. And I was like, is that the message of this movie? Like, it never really occurred to me throughout the course of the film what the overarching theme of the film was, other than, like, family, I guess. Family matters. But when that kind of got dropped, I was like, oh, oh, okay. It just feels like, plot-wise, it's real simple. It's like they discovered this villain, and the villain just keeps showing up. And that's kind of your plot. Um, So, I don't know. It's like a extension of what would be like a half hour cartoon uh it was totally watchable as you said i don't think the animation in dreamworks stuff is typically that jaw dropping but it's a, it's mm-hmm. effective enough it gets the job done and it's very bright and colorful this movie though it's a candy rush and whether you are responding that heavily to a candy rush for 90 minutes i think depends on your age and uh sadly that's something i find just with dreamworks for me as an adult, they just don't really connect, which I was actually just as a postscript to kind of my opinion there when I was done. And normally what I do is I'll write all my notes and everything, watch the movie. And then I might look up just kind of what's the critical take on the movie. I don't tend to look at that before I watch the movie. Mm -hmm. And this one has like a pretty decent Rotten Tomatoes meter. I think it's like in the, you know, mid to high seventies in terms of recommends. So I was just scrolling through the reviews just to see what people had said. And the number of reviews that said, like, fun, zippy entertainment, keep the kids entertained while you nap. It was like variations on that a lot. Mm. So it wasn't like saying this is a movie that the whole family is going to be immersed in. A lot of the reviews, like, I mean, like, maybe 75% of the reviews were like, kids are going to love it. Well, yeah, yeah, to be fair, I don't think this is pitched as a four-quadrant movie or anything like that. Like, it is not meant to be appeasing everyone. And I can hear what some of you might be thinking on the other end of this podcast listening you know these two guys in their middle age well certainly cam uh <laughs> no i'm in the well past old age i've actually exceeded the longest living man uh title you can no longer move it move it yeah, no 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 <laughs> um I, I like you know bagging on a kid's film of course they're not going to be liking it it's not built for them i'd like to think that I can be objective enough to kind of go, I understand what this is, and I can look at it through that lens and judge if it works. And I think we both have acknowledged that it would work for kids, but I think we discussed in the past when we've talked about kids' films, specifically the Spy Kids films, they work best when they try and do something for everyone. When they have, you know, the silly gags and the the transmookers and stuff like that. And then they have these great, like, Harryhausen-style action sequences in Spy Kids too. There's clearly riffing off stuff that we would know. And there's things that we would understand. You take The Simpsons, for example. That is a animated comedy show that works for kids and adults. It plays perfectly for both. There's jokes that you get as a kid that you know are a kind of adult, and you're like, oh, I got that one. But then as an adult, there's things that the kids are not getting at all, and it's great. This is pitched completely at kids, and that's not a problem. That's fine. If that's the film you want to make, that's fine. It shouldn't be appeasing everyone. 
But that doesn't mean then I can't throw some criticism its way and say that maybe it should have reached a little bit further because there, as Cam said, there's no pathos here. There is no emotion in this film. There's no journey particularly for anyone to go from. Even Private, played by Christopher Knights, the sort of the youngest of the penguins, is meant to have this sort of arc throughout the film where he's acknowledged by others. Mm-hmm. But that's really just lip service, just in between gags. It doesn't have time to actually spend with that character's internal journey. No. And I don't say that as like a, we need to have a sobering adult drama about the journey of private, a coming of age story, if you will. It's like, there are plenty of animated movies that can capture the same sort of arc much better. Well, um... What was that one a couple of years back with, like, inside the little girl's brain with the emotions? Inside Out. Right. I mean, that film worked for kids. That film is particularly strong for adults. Like, it's a really well-crafted film. Soul, I think, was really good at that, too. Worked on both sides of the fence. This works really well on one side of the fence, but we don't live on that side. Well, you look at even just like The Lion King as a coming-of-age story about, you know, young Simba. And that's, again, a colorful, cute animal that the whole family loves. And everyone is so emotionally invested in that journey. Whereas here, as you said, it's kind of like lip service. It knows the basic arcs that are going to be easy to communicate to an audience. Mm -hmm. But it is that closed line of gags. And so it so much depends on how much you are distracted or, in the best case, wowed by nonstop gags. and some colorful set pieces there is a skydive sequence i thought in this movie maybe pivoting into things we liked sure that i thought was genuinely fantastic it was really well staged it was funny the way they were crashing into different planes as they tried to get uh you know from one location to the next really well done there is some visually dynamic storytelling going on that i think is effective and when the movie's at its best it's kind of working into that the way it can kind of blend visuals with humor I think sometimes it does quite well. Well, you've got to think these sort of films have like the biggest scope when it comes to what they can do. It's, they're only sort of uh, restricted by their own imagination because it's animated. They can basically do whatever they want. And so when it takes chances like that, like the, the sort of skydiving scene without parachutes, of course, I think it's really great. I also think like the villain dave the octopus his his ship like coming up to new york and sort of crashing him coming out and all that sort of stuff around there i thought it looked really cool and how they just present dave like personally i think it's got this really cool body horror thing about him the way he like yes. crawls around it reminded me like uh the exorcist or like poltergeist one of the two the one where it does like the backwards crawl like it was creepy there was a genuine fear factor to it i was like that's interesting do more of that yeah, the backwards crawl is the Exorcist director's cut version or extended version. Yeah, I actually thought of Roger Rabbit when Judge Doom is run over by the steamroller and then like stands up and he's like really thin and so creepy and unsettling. Mm. I thought of that when Dave showed up in his disguise as like a human scientist and then fell and was like all twisted into like a knot and undoing himself. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's really effective stuff. And it also gave me a little bit of vibe of calling back to one of our very early films, Men in Black. With the roach in the human suit, like that, it, how it just didn't quite fit and didn't look quite right. That was just a nice touch. I thought that was really good. Yeah. So it's like there's definitely animation touches throughout. And I think the the main characters, they do something I think that's actually really effective and maybe doesn't get, you know, a spotlight put on it very much. You have four penguins. They all look pretty distinct unto themselves. 
And I've heard complaints from people who, for example, went and saw Avatar, a movie you referenced earlier, and had trouble telling some of the characters apart. I think when you are working in animation and creating, you know, characters who all look very similar, mm. it can be very difficult to make them distinct enough that the eye can track each of them individually. And I thought that the filmmakers did a really good job. They obviously had some practice coming out of Madagascar 1 uh, and then having 2 as well, and 3 actually at this point as well, to kind of nail down how to make these characters pop individually. But I think this movie does a really good job there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. In terms of things I liked, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but I think Benedict Cumberbatch and John Malkovich both do a really good job. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch is known for his voice acting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, say what you want about the Hobbit film. Smaug is very well done. Yeah. Just watching behind-the-scenes videos of him crawling around pretending to be a dragon is absolutely hilarious if you've never seen that. But he does a really good voice. He does a really good voice in that. He does a really good voice in lots of other things. But as classified, the wolf, Mr. Classified, Agent Classified, whatever you want to call him, really good gravitas. But then John Malkovich is where it's really at because he is doing such a range throughout the film of emotions. He does different voices inside of his own voice. It's it's very well done. And so and you mentioned about them having the reps and they've done some of these films before. Obviously, that helps feed into all of this. But you get a grade A actor like John Malkovich, because this is, this is something we uh, we sort of we, yeah we recently had uh, Catherine Vinclair on the show for our Skyfall review, professional voice artist, and you know talking about actors stepping into the sort of VO booth. And one thing you find sometimes is not all actors are voice actors. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always translate. They've picked two here that really do translate, and they are very effective in this film. And actually, that's something DreamWorks has really stumbled with a few times, where it was like, we've got to cast movie stars in all these movies. And then when the voice performance comes across, it's like, eh, like it's not really a very strong animation character voice. But I think that's n like not the case here. And also, I mean, with animation, they record the voices before they do the animation. And so like they are animating to the voice performance. And you get the sense there was a certain amount of inspiration coming out of especially that Malkovich performance that I think really drove the way that character comes across. And Malkovich is very like playful with what he's doing here. He's going out on a limb often, going kind of crazy with the way he delivers lines. And uh, it really works for a villain character. I think I prefer maybe this uh, octopus character to the one that showed up in like Finding Dory, uh, the you know Pixar sequel from a handful of years ago. I think this one's actually maybe a little more fun. Yeah, I, I, they were the things that kept me going throughout the film, I think, were those two performances. But is there anything else you wanted to highlight, things you liked? Well, I wanted to just highlight for a second, while we talk about Benedict Cumberbatch, his pronunciation of the word penguin. I had that from my notes at the end, but uh, I, I do seem to recall this becoming a little bit of a media thing when it happened on Twitter. But for those who aren't aware and haven't watched the film, uh, Benedict seems to have a bit of an issue pronouncing the word penguins. And you often hear, I, I hear penguins, pen wings. I heard like penguins. Right. Yeah. Mm. I, 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 I mean, to be fair, Benedict Cumberbatch could say anything to me. I'd be like, okay. Yeah. Well, here's the question. Did the filmmakers recognize that he was mispronouncing it and realized it would be amazing for the character? What came first, the chicken or the egg? I, because I, I do recall mm. there being this chat about him not being able to pronounce things properly. Was that from this? 
Or was that from something else and they're capitalizing on it with this and told him to lean into it, perhaps? I don't know. I've seen that Graham Norton clip where he talks about the pronunciation of penguins, but I don't know the year of that clip. So, I, yeah, I don't know. We'll look it up and see if we can post something during the week. But, uh, yeah, it, there is definitely... I feel like there must be some sort of continuity for this to happen because, I, you know, when people do voiceovers, they're they're in the room usually with a director or a producer or someone like that who can coach them through the performance. And unless they really wanted them to say penguins, they would probably get them to do another take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless it's like Shatner back in the 60s saying sabotage. Sabotage. Yeah. Yeah, but Cam, did you have any other things you want to highlight? Well, I think we should just like shout out the lead voices especially like i think tom mcgrath as skipper is really fun when you see like the original madagascar they're not spies the spy fi elements really come around later with the penguins they are more like um just like this crack like escape artist team that are just always like pulling heists and embarking on like little side missions of their own but like they're very funny in like those small doses I can see why they were inspired to launch them into a kid's animated show and then a movie. But I think like, you know, Tom McGrath, when he takes that role in Madagascar, the first one, it's like, I have maybe like six lines or something Mm. like that. Like, this will be fun. I think he actually does a reasonably good job as the lead of this movie. Because that's a that could be a steep order to suddenly be like, okay, you are now the primary voice of this movie. You are the one who's going to have a lot of the... um, emotional back and forth with you know the uh private character i think tom mcgrath's pretty good in this movie and very funny well i interest me to know that he'd not done anything before really doing this in terms of voice work because i think he does a really good job with it i mean he's definitely playing a character he's putting on a particular voice he's got kind of a military affectation to him yeah but that's fine he, he clearly is acting it and he's doing a good job i I, I don't think I can say much about the other three penguins. Private perhaps has a couple of moments of like has like certain levels to him, but the other two chaps uh, are, are pretty much one note characters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to shout out two things. One, I think this film is has some good jokes in it and I really wanted to highlight its pun work. Oh yeah. Dave the Octopus, uh, at one point, although he does it several points throughout the film, but there's like a chain of them at one point where he references actors in sentences, which is all just from scripting. But did you did you catch this? I did, yeah. Hallie, bury them. Yeah, Drew, Barry, more power. Uh, what else have we got? Hugh, Jack, man the battle stations. Nicholas, cage them. He- Kevin, bake on. Like, Yeah. It's... It's silly, silly little jokes, but that's one of the, thing, the times I maybe kind of got a smile out of me, which is which is rare. And I also wanted to mention, because we did sort of say we would mention this, this film does have a lot of love for, for other spy movies. Mm-hmm. Especially James Bond. Especially James Bond, yeah. You look at some of the action sequences. There's a whole bit in Venice on a gondola that is basically one-upping Moonraker. O- on a what? Gondola. Gondola. Potato, potato. Uh, right, everyone. Uh, just mark this one down. Gondola is uh, that's a new camism right there. Gondola time. Okay, fair enough. It's my penguin or whatever. My yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's Cam's penguin. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, that whole sequence is very like trying to one up Moonraker, where yeah. it's on wheels going throughout the city. The whole bit breaking into the Fort Knox is very Goldfinger, even with the sleeping gas. 
Yep. Uh, yep. There's also, you know, they get jetpacks kind of riffing off a of Thunderball there. Um, and also, you know, the, the gondolas are also... <laughs> Uh, 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 yeah, they're in Venice, and Venice has appeared in quite a few Bond films at this point now. I think three in total, and there's a couple of other little spy riffs. There's a there's a theme running throughout the film that's basically riffing off of the Mission Impossible theme most of the way through. Kind of generic spy esque music, but like it, it's definitely hearkening to that. And there's also a scene where the penguins are causing a distraction, dressed as uh, Bavarians with an accordion, <laughs> which is straight out of Charlie's Angels. That's true. I didn't even yeah connect that one. Um, I thought the bit where they, when they were in Shanghai and thought they were in Ireland was actually pretty funny. It feels like something you would do. <laughs> where, Thanks. Where's the Blarney Stone? Huh? <laughs> I, I did have a question for you. At one point, one of them adopts a British accent as part of their cover. Um, how was that British accent on a scale of 1 to 10? Fine. It was fine. I guess like a... a... You need to be more critical of these British accents because I presented you with a few that I feel were a little shaky, but you were like, yeah, it's fine. I've I've heard so many bad ones that the ones that are just mediocre don't really like go on my radar anymore. It has to be awfully bad for me to go, oh, that was a... Right. That was a trashy accent. No, I don't think it really jumped out to me particularly. Uh, And then, of course, you've got like the classically trained Benedict Cumberbatch in the film who, of course, that's how all British people should sound. Um, in in terms of just like, maybe the last thing that worked for me, I thought the opening with like the documentary crew was actually very funny, and that was some of the most I think brilliant um inside joke or references that the movie had because a lot of them are really obvious, like really obvious, but this one was actually I thought kind of layered. First off, having Werner Herzog do the voiceover, who's you know done documentaries like A Counter at the Far Side of the World. Very funny. I like that a lot. And just having him say things that are kind of like cutesy kid terms. Perfect. Great idea. It also, at the same time, is kind of touching on the popularization of things like March of the Penguins, that documentary the world went absolutely crazy for in the 20... Was that the 2000s or the 2010s? I don't remember. Well, I clearly didn't go crazy for it because I've never heard of it. It was a massive phenomenon. Like, it was a huge box office hit. Uh, Yeah. Everyone in North America went crazy for it. What did more money, March of the Penguins or Penguins of Madagascar? It might have been March of the Penguins. Wow, the ultimate Penguins film. Or is that Batman Returns? Oh, that too, yeah. Uh, yeah, March of the Penguins it was narrated by Morgan Freeman, and it was a massive, massive hit. Andy Dufresne. Yeah, and so like the way they were kind of commenting on that was fun, and the whole concept of the popularization of Penguin documentaries, that was clever. And then there was a moment that I was like, genius. No one will recognize this, but it's absolute genius, which is the documentary crew pushing the penguins off the cliff, where I was like, I'm pretty sure that is a reference to, in 1958, there was a Walt Disney documentary in which it was called uh, White Wilderness, and it introduced the concept of lemmings, how lemmings run off a cliff together. Mm -hmm. And what actually happened was the crew was shoving lemmings off a cliff with a broom and filming it. And that whole urban legend of lemmings running off cliffs is entirely created by that documentary. So you want me to tell me that the basis of the entire Lemmings video game, which is a series that's still going now and started in the late 80s, is based off of some assholes in the 50s working for Disney. Did they run off cliffs in that? Was that the whole gist of it? Well, they're like walking in single file, and if you don't sort them out, they're going to walk off the end of the cliff. 
So you have to kind of get them to their home through various machinations, otherwise they fall off and die, yes. Yeah, the whole cliff aspect, yeah, them running off a cliff altogether is entirely created by that 1958 documentary. Wow. Yeah, right? Well, that that is a very smart bit of commentary there. So that's the first thing that's probably aimed at adults in the entire film. And very old adults at that point, too. <laughs> and just a weird little side note, um, I went and did a tour of Walt Disney Studios uh, back in November. I saved up a ton of Disney points. That's the way to do it, folks. Um, but uh, I got to hold the Oscar for Best Documentary made out to White Wilderness from 1958. Wow. You got to hold an Oscar. I did indeed, yes. Why have I not seen a picture of that? I think I did. I not send you the photo. I think I, I think you did. How 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 heavy is an Oscar? They're pretty heavy, actually. Mm. Yeah. Well, hang on then. We need to figure out what was the ultimate Penguin film of all time. If it's not Batman Returns, if it's not The March of the Penguins, if it's not Penguins of Madagascar, is it White Wilderness? I don't know that that one's focused on penguins as much. I mean, if they're pushing lemmings off a cliff, then clearly it's hopping all over the place. But mm. okay. Let us know. What do you think is the ultimate penguin movie of all time? I'm sure there's some interesting choices out there that I've not researched. Mm, I think I would come down for Batman Returns. Or or The Batman. Sure. Although that one's not penguin-focused. True. Although, to be fair, Batman Returns also has Catwoman. Also true. Conundrum. Conundrum. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam. What have we got in our crosshairs this month? DiCaprio's on the run and we're in pursuit because we are tackling the 2002 Steven Spielberg film, Catch Me If You Can. Is this minor Spielberg? Major? Come fly with us and find out. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, it's time to tumble onto our chubby bonbons and talk about the dislikes for the film. I've got a couple. The first one, and this is a connected dislike to, I believe, Men in Black 3. And that is because both of them are connected to the artist known as Pitbull. I don't really know Pitbull that well, so... How? He's Mr. Worldwide. Why do you not know him? Okay, explain. What is the Pitbull connection? Okay, Pitbull is a musical artist. Uh, yeah. He did the soundtrack for Men in Black 3, and he also did the soundtrack for this film. He plays on the end credits, uh, before the end, the post-credits teaser in this film. Uh, and uh, yeah, anytime I hear Pitbull, I want to put pens in my ears. Just a knee-jerk reaction there, folks. What's worse, the music in this movie or the Move It, Move It, which, you know, it's acknowledged in this movie, but is a huge part of the original Madagascar. I'd take Move It, Move It, because at least that's a good song. I think I've, I've never met a Pitbull song I liked. Okay, fair enough. I mean, this the music in this movie really didn't stick with me at all. Like, it just no. felt like typical kids' movie trailer music. Or not trailer, but credits music. 
Yeah, uh, there is that sort of Mission Impossible soundtrack bit that's been laid in there. That someone has sort of made some effort to put some spy tracks in there. But the main thing I want to point out as a dislike is, is actually how the film is paced. Mm-hmm. Because it actually feels like it's supposed to end about 20 minutes before it ends. I don't know if you picked up on this at all. But there's a rather large climax that happens inside Dave the Octopus's ship, the sort of enemy. And it feels like they're building towards an ending. And then they just sort of delay the ending for 20 minutes so you can have this whole bit of hijinks on in sort of the south part of New York with the penguins all being turned into sort of abominations, which is fine. And there's more gags to be had there. But there is a real sense that it's supposed to end at that point. It genuinely feels like it's done. I felt the same way. The plot to me just turned into the villain just just keeps coming back. Mm -hmm. Because it would be like they'd get to his base, they'd expose the whole, was it Medusa serum? Is that what it was? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the the substance that changes, transforms characters into monsters. Which, um, just a side note, I thought the whole Medusa serum thing, the idea of transforming characters into creatures, really underplayed. Like, the designs that they were turned into were so uninteresting like go crazy like really have fun with the whole transformation aspect the movie doesn't well like the the cricket they change is quite interesting yeah but then when they change the penguins they just become green with the odd bit of weird arm or tentacle yeah it just felt like a real missed opportunity that i think in a more ambitious project they really would have had a lot of fun with the whole transformation aspect Mm -hmm. didn't really do that here but yeah in terms of like the pacing it's 80 minutes, it's zippy for kids, but in terms of, like, I think paying attention as an adult, as you said, it's building to this kind of, like, big reveal of the villain, and you're like, okay, oh, that's not the end of the movie? Okay, we're going to keep going. But it never felt like it was developing new things. It's not like the villain, because there's lots of movies, I mean, most superhero movies, they meet the villain about the halfway point, but then you have a sense of an overarching big scheme that is going to you know, basically lead into your third act. That's going to be a big sort of climactic set piece. Mm-hmm. And some of those set pieces in Marvel movies, let's be fair, uh, not great. But nonetheless, there is an overarching model to this type of storytelling. Here it was like, here's your villain. Here's his plan. And then he's just going to keep coming back and chasing the penguins. It felt like almost like sometimes a video game where, you know, there's like games you'll play where suddenly, and I'm talking more old model games, not so much new world. I don't play new video games really, but back in the day, you'd have like a so Pong. <laughs> All, yeah, Pong is the perfect reference point. But no, you know, there'd be games where like the villain of the game would show up and chase you through certain parts of a level and then disappear and mm-hmm. then come back like two levels later and do the same thing. And you, the whole point was just keep evading them till you got to a final confrontation at the end of the game. Mario did that famously. You'd bump into Bowser and then he'd disappear and you, and you finally get to him at the end and then your princess is in another castle. Exactly. That's what this feels like. It feels like it's structured that same way where it's like we just keep having encounters with this villain. He runs off and then he'll come back at the end. And it just... As you said, like 80 minutes, I think for a kid in terms of energy, it keeps the energy high, but it doesn't engage, at least me very much. And as I said, this film, if it's pitched at just kids and that's what they wanted, that's fine. But this film fails to grab any adult, I would say. I don't think there's any adult that would go into film, walk out and be like, gee willikers, that was the best film I've seen this year. (laughs) And I thought even like the pop culture references... A lot of them are pitched at adults, but they're like so on the nose or on the beak <laughs> references. Ooh. Thank you. Thank you. That um, 
it's kind of like you you do more of a oh I I recognize that reference. It's not particularly funny. It's just like oh there's a reference. Like there's the character that says you maniac you blew him up and I'm like oh yeah it's a line for Planet of the Apes. Cool. Well, that, that that's kind of like the old the spy hard school and the films that his kids went on to do after that, where it's just like, here's a reference. Now laugh. Yeah. Mm. Doesn't doesn't quite translate. I think it, like the the ones I mentioned, like the Werner Herzog documentary stuff, that's clever. I thought mm-hmm. the the Moonraker riffing stuff in in Venice was pretty clever. But yeah. there was a lot of stuff where you're like, okay, like there was the big um. 360 spinning camera shot from the Avengers that they worked into this movie where I'm like that is definitely a shot from the Avengers. Yes. Yes, that that is a thing I recognize. Congratulations. Do you not think it was a mistake in in Venice when the gondola uh <laughs> became an all-terrain gondola like it did in uh, Moonraker but then you get the shot of the guy who's been in the previous films drinking it's not a mistake to have just a guy kind of like take a sip of the drink and then, or, or have a double-taking pigeon. I was thinking the double-taking pigeon. I'm like, you throw that in there, that's genius. Yeah. Because it also would work for any audience member. A kid who's never seen a James Bond movie in their life would probably have a funny reaction to a kind of goofy animated, whatever, pigeon or whatever, some type sure. of bird, yeah. doing a double or a triple take. It would work. I, I thought they should have done a that. A triple? I think it's a triple take in the movie. Uh, I was referencing Condor Man. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Taking it to another Disney bird thing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I think that gag would have been really clever. And it feels like they introduce things. They kind of tiptoe up to what could be clever, and then they kind of back away because eh, we don't need to go that extra extra mile. Which which is what makes me think that this film was made as okay. We've built these characters into being sort of spy adjacent agents. We now should explore that in a feature film. But none of the filmmakers were particularly fans of spy movies. They just know what the tropes are. It's like the the writers of any new age Star Trek show. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's that's fair, yeah. And they're like, Oh Grey, phases, got it. And something we have not discussed at all, and we are like, you know, seventy minutes into the episode, the Northwind spy team, who are kind of like celeb voices in this movie. I mean, Cumberbatch is obviously a member of it, but you've also got like Peter Stormare. Um, you've got a few Ken Young. Ken Young as well. Like these are prominent characters. Did they grab you at all? No, they felt like they were weirdly underwritten. Like it was meant to be this whole love interest between Kowalski and Eva that's not really sort of developed at all. Um, and and like you just get Ken Young just shouting, which is somewhat what people expect from a ken young performance you know they've seen the hangover they've seen him shouting he actually can do a lot more if you watch something like community for instance but uh yeah i strangely benedict cumberbatch gets the most amount of time because he's the leader but like they all feel very sort of bland and just kind of there like tell me off the top of your head what's the best classified moment and classified is the name of the cumberbatch character in the movie for those who didn't watch the movie I can answer that question with an actual honest answer instead of a funny one, which is when they're getting the intel from the penguins and he figures out that it's not a goat and then says to release the goat and then the goat gets pushed out. That got a little giggle out of me. Right. Like the, you see the sort of fallibility behind the the facade that he's putting up, that he's some sort of macho team leader. But it, it does feel like if you're going to bring these people in, you, you do a bit more with them. 
And like they come in and sort of save the day at the end, but then get completely like the legs taken out from underneath them. Why not have them involved and or just do something like I'm just to set up the ending for you all. That right towards the end, the penguins are defending Private from firing a big old laser beam. Um, and they're like their backs are up against the wall. It's kind of like you know the Avengers, something like that. And then at the last minute, the North Wind swoops in and sort of mows down some octopi, but then gets taken out by some other people. Whereas you could have had them like jumping in to defend them at the last minute, and they get this great moment of them kicking a bit of octopi butt. But they don't do that. They just kind of do a gag of them getting scooped up by the sort of the cleaning up team or whatever they were. I had to rewind that moment. Because it was so unceremonious of removing them from what was going on that I was like, wait, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah, you, you um, maybe it was like a time thing or something, but they could have done with like a a moment where they're saving the day. Because they don't actually really get much of a heroic moment at all. They're almost like the foil for some of the film. And when they do pop up, it tends to threaten to slow the movie down. Because mm. their stuff is more standing around talking. And so it feels like they're kind of rushing through any sort of meaningful stuff with them to just kind of get to the next gag. Yeah, I just thought they were kind of like a concept that was fun that fell pretty flat. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame, especially when you have that uh, cast of like Benedict and, and Ken Young, at least anyway. But I think before we look at the knock list, just go to final notes. I had a couple. The first one I've got is, uh, Cam, are you going to eventually tell us about Canada's secret Sasquatch army? <laughs> never it's the ultimate country secret it's a top secret it's top secret i understand and the other question i had was if you were hit by the cuteness ray what would it turn you into hmm baby shark i would oh you actually went something that isn't you that's interesting it's probably something to unpick there uh, from a psychological standpoint. Oh, well, I was going with the animal theme because of the movie. And I was like, well, I mean, obviously, sh I go on about sharks and all that sort of thing. So baby shark seems like the best answer to that one. See, I just would have thought it would have been like a... I mean, for me, it would just be like a young version of me. I, was, I, I, I imagine I was quite cute as a kid. I guess I go back to being five years old or something like that. That's, uh, I was adorable then. I'm still waiting to become adorable. We're all waiting. <laughs> Did you have any final notes? Um, there was a bit where they had like 3D glasses on and I'm like, this was the era of 3D and I'm sure that this was a center point of the movie was having that sequence that really felt intentional. Yeah, I noticed that and uh, shuddered a little bit because we don't really do that here in the UK anymore and I don't want to go back to those times. Nope. Uh, there was a bit where it was like two penguins with their hands on the glass opposite each other, very like Star Trek 2, but I wasn't sure like... Do you think that was a reference to Star Trek 2 or just staging of a sequence? I think that's just staging. The, the film made no other effort to reference the Star Trek film. No, the only thing is, like, one year before, Cumberbatch is in, obviously, um, you know, Star Trek Into Darkness, which has the same moment. So it felt coincidental, at least. Critically lauded Star Trek Into Darkness. Yes, everyone was trying to copy Star Trek Into Darkness. You're right. It was actually well-reviewed at the time. Idiots. No. There was also a nod to Raiders of the Lost Ark when they were putting all the caged animals into the big warehouse. The establishing shot yep. of the the big warehouse was yeah stripped right out of the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, there was also like a weird moment, I thought. Like, I thought most of the comedy came across... Just, just one? <laughs> I thought most of the comedy hit its intended you know, audience target reasonably well. But there was that weird like kiss moment where like... 
uh, or private was going around like thanking them for a birthday present and kissing them all. And then he has this weird like locked beaks moment with this one penguin where the, the penguin that's kissing him back looks very angry. And I was like, this is a very weirdly staged moment. I don't even remember that. Yeah. I was just like, what the hell's going on? This is a very strangely um, timed and delivered comedy moment. Was it at the end of the film? No, near the start, when they're breaking into Fort Knox for his birthday or something. Oh, okay. Okay. No, I don't remember that at all. Anything else? I think there was one other gag I'll just mention about when they were asked, like, can you fly a plane? And it just cut to them reading the manual. That kind of got a chuckle out of me. Apparently that was also, there was a line where they were referencing the first Madagascar film where he says, I still can't read, where in the first one, apparently he can't read. Even though it's only been like three days, that movie was like a vapor out of my mind. So uh, I'll take your word for it. You're, you're, you're the real Madagascant, not Madagascan. Maybe it was something that was also delivered more upon with the Madagascar sequels, which I can't promise I'll be rushing to check out. Apart from apparently on our Patreon. <laughs> well, we're going to go minute by minute of each Madagascar <laughs> film. <laughs> I sincerely hope not. But it, we have arrived at the destination, but we do have to just wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. We've achieved maximum coolness. It's time to talk about the knock list. Cam, what do you think? Greatest spy movie of all time? No. Oh, no? Okay, fine. <laughs> no, no. Um, I am going to be really interested when we look at some of these other animated spy movies. Like, we've got Spies in Disguise. We have, um, obviously, the Boss Baby movies. There's also Cars 2. I don't know that like any of these have a reputation swirling around them, like a you know Pixar Inside Out or something like that, like one of these established modern classics of the form. But I am just going to be really interested to see if they deliver in a way that I feel is superior to this one. Because I do think, like as a like baseline you know, kids' spy comedy, it's, it's fine. Yeah, it's totally, totally fine. This was inoffensive to watch, um, but it's not something that I think is particularly special. It's definitely not very memorable, and uh, you know, it does its thing for eighty minutes and it's over. That's kind of my takeaway. There's gonna be movies I'm sure I hate far more this year. If forced to, I would happily sit and rewatch. I don't know about happily, but I would very easily sit and rewatch this movie. But no, it's not knockless material at all. No, I don't think there's much of a question. It's it's a no from me too. I mean, you, you use a lot of the words I was going to say, unmemorable, unremarkable. It's already disappearing out of my brain. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. If you're looking at something to sort of introduce kids to the world of spy movies, maybe this is a good entry point, but I would, I would generally send them the way of spy kids. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I found, I watched this movie last night about 1130 at night and got up this morning to record the episode and i had to read my notes in terms of what had happened in the back half especially the back half of the movie i was like what happened again and that's not normally the case with things we watch no but uh, i think before we wrap up i did say there was a list of the best spy comedies of all time so would you like to hear a couple of the other entries on this list yeah sure agent cody banks okay stay tuned best defense from 1984 Hmm. We have to add that one to the list. I don't think I have that one down anywhere. Uh, Codename The Cleaner. Okay, that's on our list. Yeah. Despicable Me 2, another animated feature. Yeah, okay. 
I'm also not a fan of the Illumination animation brand, which does the Despicable Me stuff. Also, very like celebrity voices and easy gags. Nude Bomb from 1980. Okay, that's a kind of a, a spin-off of Get Smart in a way. And Spy Hard's favorite, The Man with One Red Shoe. Who made this list? An insane person? I mean, there's a lot more I'm cutting out, and I'm doing most of this oh, okay. the comedy value here. So, uh... oh, okay, okay. But it does end on Undercover Brother, which is, of course, a highlight. Okay, is Top Secret on there? Yes, it is. Okay, fair enough. I mean, there's there's a lot of spy comedies out there. I feel like we haven't tackled a lot of great ones, but there's more out there. <laughs> we Yeah, we will find one that works. And this list has got a couple of uh, interesting choices that I think might have a shot at making the knock list. Although, to be fair, True Lies did. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Spy comedy right there. But there you go, folks. Two no's as such. Penguins Madagascar is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Cam, I'm going to bat it back to you, sir. What are we doing next week? Well, I just realized this was a peng lose, not a peng win. Oh. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? I'm the pun guy. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, we are going back to the 1960s. To hang out with Matt Helm for a third time, we're tackling 1967's The Ambushers. Yes, the third of our Matt Helm series. I'm looking forward to this one. I had a lot of fun with the first two. They've sort of mixed results, but I love hanging out with old Dino. So, uh, yeah, it should be an absolute blast. And it doesn't take place in the year 1966. I know, right? Disappointing. Is Matt Helm the same outside of 66? There's only one way to find out, and that is to join us next week. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we check out The Ambushers. And if you like what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next time, listeners, if you need us, you'll find us chowing down on a bag of cheesy pibbles. We'll